How are you guys? Good, good. Well, let's just dive right in. Let me pray and we'll get to uh, John chapter 4. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for an opportunity to gather together with these brothers and sisters as we sing and study your word and take communion. God, we partake in these sacred acts as believers have been doing for thousands of years, not out of religious duty or begrudging obedience, but God, we do these things because we believe the gospel and our lives have been changed as a result. God, as we look at your scriptures this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to your voice. May we continue to be changed by the truth in this book, and may the gospel of Jesus, the life-changing, soul-restoring good news of Christ, be exalted in every passage we look at. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Almost 10 years ago, exactly, I took my first international trip to Ethiopia with my friend named Chad. Chad's actually here somewhere in the room. I saw him walk in earlier. And while we were there in Ethiopia, we did a fair amount of driving in the Ethiopian countryside, which is the birthplace of coffee. Love it. It is stunningly beautiful if you've never been to, to Ethiopia. And I saw something on that trip that up until that point in my life, I had never seen before, but have since seen in a number of places like Rwanda and Ghana, and I've seen it all over India. As we drove through the countryside, I noticed wells in each little village or each town that we would drive through. And coming from over the hills down to the well, uh, you would see these paths. And early in the morning, you would see women walking to and from the well, collecting water for their family for the day. Now, this concept of gathering our drinking water for the day, it's not something that we can easily identify with, right? Like, we just go home and we turn on the faucet and we can pretty much just drink water anywhere we want, anytime we want. We don't really have this concept of collecting our water for our home, unless, of course, you're one of those people that drive on Highway 26 to the coast and you pull over and collect water, which, if you are one of those people, by the way, I have so many questions, so please come talk to me afterwards. I would just love to know, like, mostly just why. Uh, that's, like, my big question, but that's neither here nor there. Point is, uh, we are very fortunate when it comes to our relationship with water, but a large portion of the world is not as fortunate. Let me read you some statistics. 2.2 billion people around the world do not have easy access to clean drinking water. That is roughly one-third of the world's population. On the continent of Africa alone, women spend a combined 200 million hours per day walking to collect water for their families. Globally, one person dies every 37 seconds from an illness related to not having access to clean water, which means if I preach a normal length sermon, not like the kind I preached last week, but like just a normal one, if I preach a normal sermon this week, roughly 73 people will die due to not having access to clean drinking water. Here's why I am talking so much about water. Water is life. It's life. It's, it's a very simple and a very harsh reality of our humanity. If you do not have access to clean water, you die. It's that simple. In the passage we're going to look at today, we're introduced to a woman who has come to the local well for water. And as she does, she meets Jesus. And he extends to her, and he extends to us living water. A water that if we were to drink it, will lead to eternal life, and we will never thirst again. 
If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we will put these words on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Now, before we dive in, let me say something that might shock you, and then I will try to calm your worries a little bit. Today, we are going to cover almost all of chapter 4, okay? (laughs) Now, before you start throwing stones, uh, I I want to cover all of chapter 4 because I I want you to see the story in fullness. I, I want, it's a cohesive story, and I want to cover it fully. But then, over the next five to seven weeks, we are going to do a little mini-series on John chapter 4. So we're going to teach through all of John chapter 4, basically, today, the woman at the well. And then, for the next five to seven weeks, we're going to camp out in chapter 4 and do a deep dive on specific verses or passages. So today, you will notice that I will skip over a few verses and I will brush over others, but no need to fret. We will be spending a lot of time in this chapter, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus hears that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are catching wind of how much influence he is having, so he decides that it's time to move on. He doesn't want to cause any trouble. So he moves from Judea in the south to this place up north called Galilee. And as he does, he travels through this region called Samaria. Now, before we go any further, in order to fully grasp the significance of this encounter, we need to back up and talk some history about this place called Samaria. So if you're a a history nerd, you're in luck this morning. Here's a quick history lesson. Around the year 721 BC, so some 750 years before this encounter that we're going to read about, there was a ruler named Sargon II, which is a really cool name, Sargon. Like if I... If I ever have a son, I will name him Sargon, because it's like science. If you name a kid Sargon, they have to grow up to be like president or rule a nation or like a gang in prison or something. Like they're going to run something. They're going to do something really, really powerful. So Sargon ruled this place called Assyria. And under his rule, he and the Assyrian army conquered an area in the northern kingdom of Israel where our story takes place. And under his reign... He exiled several thousand Jewish people, essentially making them refugees in another land. He also imported thousands of people from other places in the known world to inhabit this new land he conquered. Now, those people he brought in were not Jewish people. They were people who didn't worship Yahweh. They worshiped a number of other gods. So what happened over time is you had these Jews who were left in this area, and then you had all these people who were imported into the area, and they started to intermarry and have children. And so you basically had this giant mixed race of people. This area became known as Samaria, and this mixed breed of people became known as the Samaritans. Now, fast forward 750 years in the story to the time of Jesus, there was a great relational divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jews. It wasn't just an unfriendly relationship. It was a hateful relationship. Maybe I can explain it like this. Several years ago, it was actually the year that we planted this church, I had a really good friend who won several season tickets to the Portland Timbers. And so that year in particular, I went to several games, and his tickets were in the Timbers Army. And it's kind of hard to explain the Timbers Army culture if you've never been to a a game, Uh, but the way I've described it here on stage before is it's like all the people who are trying to keep Portland weird just get together one day, and then they just drink a lot, 
and sing a lot of songs together. Um, I had a friend who used to say, it's like occupy Portland, but with a purpose. Like there's a reason for it. <laughs> now, one of my first matches uh, was Portland versus Seattle, just a friendly rivalry. And at one point, we're sitting in the army, this is before the, the match started, two Seattle fans started to walk into the army. And the, the Timbers army just went ballistic just went crazy. They began yelling, profan- I mean, hundreds of people yelling profanities at these two Seattle fans. They were throwing empty cups of beer at them. And then like they had all practiced for this moment, they all start chanting the same song. It's really catchy. Maybe you've heard of it. It goes like this. Go home, you bums. Go home, you bums. Go home, you bums. Go home. They just start chanting all this hatred and this anger at these two Seattle fans. And I'll be honest, it was awesome. (laughs) I mean, to see that many people unified around one thing was just a really powerful moment. That's the kind of tension, that's the kind of tension that exists between Jews and Samaritans, okay? Now look back at the text, verse 4. This is a key verse. If you underline in your Bible or highlight in your Bible, you can highlight this. Verse 4, and he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. Now, during the time of Jesus, there were two primary ways to go from Judea in the south up to Galilee. Let me show you this on a map. There was the most direct way, which went right through Samaria. That's the red line on the screen. This route took roughly three days walking, but typically it was only a Gentile route. Now, because the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews, Jews going from Jerusalem to Galilee typically took the blue route, which went way around the city. It took twice as long, and they had to cross the Jordan River twice to do so, but they preferred it because they could avoid their enemies, the Samaritans. But the text says in verse 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. But here's the thing. No, he didn't. No one had to pass through Samaria. In fact, most Jewish people didn't pass through Samaria. But John, who is writing this years later, looking back at this story, reflecting on it, recognizes that there was a very important, some would say a divine reason why he had to go through Samaria. Look at this, verse 5. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. We'll we'll come back to this text later. We'll do a full sermon on this, this text. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour would have been high noon, the hottest part of the day, not the time of day you go collect water from a well. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And you can guarantee that this woman did not speak to Jesus. She probably didn't make eye contact with him or even look in his direction. She's probably wondering, why in the world is this Jewish man sitting at the well in the middle of the day? I came here in the middle of the day to avoid people, and now I'm encountering someone, but not just someone, a Jewish man. And then Jesus, as he often does, breaks the silence. Look at the text. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this request to give him a drink would have stunned this woman. Here is a man a Jewish man, asking a Samaritan woman for water. You see, this request from Jesus, it wasn't as much a request as it was a statement. It was a statement to this woman that Jesus was not afraid of her, that Jesus did not hate her. This was a statement of acceptance and of love. We know this based on how she responds. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, 
ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In short, this is what the woman is saying. Do you even realize what you're asking? Do you know who I am? We aren't friends. We never have been. We never will be. This is not okay. You shouldn't be talking to me. What are you doing? Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you only knew that the one asking you was the same one that created you. If you only knew that the one asking you was the same one who gave you breath this morning. If you only knew that the one asking you is the very one who sustains you in this moment. If you only knew. Now we aren't told what's going through this woman's mind, but I believe at this moment she knows something is up. She knows that this man is different, but she continues to ask more questions. Look back at the text, verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. In other words, are are you saying that this living water is better than what our father Jacob gave to us? I mean, Jacob's a pretty big deal. You ever heard of him? Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now Jesus, as he usually does, he's using what's at his disposal to teach a woman a huge spiritual lesson about his goodness. This is public speaking 101 for Jesus. He he takes any object at his disposal and he turns it into a teachable moment. We see him do this all over the gospels. One time Jesus hops into a boat with some fishermen and he invites them to follow him. Sensing that they don't fully understand what he's saying, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will take you and you can do what you're doing now, but instead of for fish, you will do that for humanity. Another time Jesus is teaching on the side of a mountain about worry and anxiety. And as he's doing so, he sees birds fly overhead and he goes, look at the bird. Does that bird worry at all? No, God provides for that bird. How much more for you? In this very instance, Jesus uses the well And he uses water to teach this woman about spiritual satisfaction. He says, this water is temporary. You can drink it today, but later you will be thirsty and you'll have to come right back to this well. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will be thirsty, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Sir, I've never met you before, but something tells me that you're you're saying something that's true. Whatever you're saying is resonating with me. Could I have some of this living water? Now, Jesus does something really strange here. Something that at at first glance, it kind of seems insensitive. I mean, if you're reading the story, you're thinking like, okay, Jesus, she gets it. Like, she believes you. Have her pray the prayer, sign the card, like whatever. (laughs) Baptize her right now. You got the water. Like, just end it. But he doesn't. He has this whole metaphor thing going, and then he does something unthinkable. He reaches into her past and he reminds her of one of her darkest moments. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not even your husband. What you have said is true. 
Jesus, he, he reaches into her past and he brings up that thing, that area of her life that she is ashamed of, that she is embarrassed to talk about. He is pouring salt on an open wound. Now, we do not know, I want to be clear about this, we do not know why she has been married so many times, okay? People are very quick to jump and say that it's her fault, but we don't know that. Perhaps she's been married five times because all of her husbands have died. Maybe all of her husbands before her have died, and this sixth man, had, seeing that, goes, you know what, we should just keep this as a dating relationship. Um, <laughs> seems to be a pattern here. But if, in fact, that all her previous husbands have died, then she would have been, in this culture, viewed as someone who was cursed by God. Perhaps the reason she couldn't keep a husband was because she couldn't have children. And in this culture, a woman's ability to bear children for her husband was her primary responsibility. So maybe her husbands all left her because of her infertility. Maybe she was married so many times because she has been unfaithful. Like, maybe it was her fault. And if that was the case, then in this culture, she would have been labeled a harlot and a whore and an outcast in society. The bottom line is we don't know whether this woman was married five times because of her sin or the sin of her husband's or some combination of the two. But what we do know is that on this day, this woman shows up to a place that she has showed up to numerous times before and she is carrying a lot of baggage. She is carrying the baggage of shame, of brokenness, of disappointment, of hurt, of five failed relationships. And Jesus just calls it out. He just calls it out, doesn't he? You know why Jesus is doing this, I believe? I believe the reason Jesus does this is because he wants to peel back the layers of our hearts and to expose our failure and our disordered desires, not to bring us shame. He doesn't operate like that. He's not doing it to bring shame on us. He's doing it to bring us back to himself to bring us to an end of ourself, of our wants, of our desires, and to bring us face-to-face with our Creator. That's why he's doing it. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. (laughs) You think? Now in verses 20 through 24, perhaps in an effort to divert attention from herself, she goes into a kind of a theological debate about where true worship should happen. We will, again, spend an entire sermon on that text. But for now, skip down to verse 25. After they have this little theological debate, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah, the Christ, is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, I don't really know who you are, but one day the Messiah will come. And when he does, he will settle this debate. He will settle this argument. For now, we will just have to agree to disagree. And then look at how Jesus ends the conversation. He looks her right in the eyes and he says this, verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the one your people have been waiting on. I am the creator. I am the savior of the world. And this woman, she sets her water jar down and she's stunned She knows that this man is telling the truth. And in that moment, in that encounter with Jesus, she believes and she takes him up on his offer as they are standing there, perhaps this woman just taking in the magnitude of what just happened to her. They hear footsteps from behind. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. She was so stunned that she left the very thing she brought to the well to fill. 
And she went away into town and said to the people, I love this, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. You can imagine this woman running back into town going, I met a man, I met a man. And they're like, oh yeah, Susie, we bet you met a man. (laughs) She's like, no, 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 it's not like that. It's not like that. This one's different. Sure he is. Yeah, sure this one's different. He told me everything, everything I've ever done. And then she goes on, can this be? Like, can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Now in verses 31 through 38, John cuts back to a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And again, we will spend an entire sermon on that text. But for this morning, skip down to verse 39. Watch how the story wraps up. This is incredible. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Such a great story. I am so looking forward to spending the next seven weeks or so unpacking it even more. But for now, we'll stop there. For now, we must ask the question, question that if you've been around for a while, you know it's coming. So what? How does this story impact our lives? If all we ever do is study the Bible and we do not apply the Bible, then we are wasting our time. We've missed it. So what's the point? In this story, we see three very clear foundational realities of the gospel. We see three foundational realities of the good news of Jesus Christ in this story. First, we see that Jesus is shockingly inclusive. He is shockingly inclusive. In this beautiful story, we see Jesus intentionally engage someone on the margins of society, someone who was other, someone who was different from him. Make no mistake about it, this woman is a social, moral, racial outcast. Jesus breaks every possible barrier to get to her, a cultural barrier, an ethnic barrier, an economic barrier, a gender barrier to extend to this woman, this outcast living water. Now, the implications of this are huge. Implication number one of this truth, you are welcomed by Jesus no matter who you are, where you come from, what you look like, or what you have done. We say that again, so important, especially if you are far from God right now. You are welcomed by Jesus no matter who you are, where you come from, what you look like, or what you've done. Jesus desires all people, all people, to be a part of his family. He does not show favoritism. Let me say it differently. Jesus does not have a favorite type of person or people group. He doesn't have a favorite skin color or a favorite socioeconomic class or a favorite gender or a favorite country. Christianity is not a male thing or a female thing or a gender questioning thing. It's not a black thing or a white thing or an Asian thing or a Latino thing. It's not a Republican thing or a Democrat thing or a liberal thing or a conservative thing. It's not an American thing or a Mexican thing. It's not a wealthy thing or a poor thing. It's not only for people who have obeyed all the rules. In fact, the more screwed up you are, the better. Christianity, this Jesus thing, it's an everyone everywhere type of thing. Now, I know that in a group this size, there are people here who were probably invited by someone. There are people sitting here who I've never met, and I don't know your story. But I want you to listen to what I'm about to say, especially if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, man, 
if this guy knew what I did, if he knew the stuff I've looked at, if he knew the people I've spent time with, if he knew the things that I've said, if he knew about my suicidal thoughts and my lustful thoughts and my jealous thoughts, he wouldn't be saying that. Listen to me. Jesus loves you so much. And he welcomes you into his family. God's vision for the world is diverse and wide and incredibly, incredibly inclusive. And it is designed for people just like you. Here's the essence of the gospel, if I could summarize it. God waits at the well for sinners like you and me. He waits at the well for us. And he offers us living water regardless of our background, our baggage, or our previous belief. And he says to you and he says to me, you are welcome here. That's implication number one of that reality. Implication number two, if this is how Jesus was with people when he was on earth in the flesh, then we also, as his church, as the body of Christ in the world, we also ought to be the same way. The Bible says that we, the church, are the, we are now the body of Christ in the world, and we should love people and we should welcome people just like Jesus did. When Jesus was on earth, the religious leaders always accused him of being a friend of sinners, and I love that. So they, they don't mean it as a compliment. They accuse him of being a friend of sinners, and Jesus is like, thank you? Like, that's kind of why I came to earth. What if we were known like that in our city? Like when people thought of table community, they thought that's a church that's a friend of sinners. Like they welcome the outcast, the marginalized, those who don't look like they belong in church. Brothers and sisters, here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus Christ desires and pursues inappropriate, unacceptable, culturally taboo relationships with people on the margins of society. And we should too. Gospel reality number two. Not only is Jesus shockingly inclusive, he is also painfully exclusive. He's shockingly inclusive, but he's painfully exclusive. Notice in the story we studied earlier, Jesus goes to this woman on the margins of society, a woman stuck in this vicious cycle of sin and shame. But Jesus doesn't just gloss over her, her shame or her sin or her pain and go, well, it's no big deal. Like, let's not even talk about it. He reaches into her deepest area of shame and he calls her to find satisfaction in a different well. And he says, the only way is through me. So backing up, does God desire for all people to follow Jesus? People from every walk of life? Absolutely, absolutely. First Timothy 2.4 says God desires all people to be saved. All people 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not wish that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. John chapter 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. So is God's vision for the world inclusive of all types of people, of every person? A thousand percent, yes. But at the exact same time, he is painfully exclusive, meaning he invites all, but you can only come in one way. I could list dozens of examples. Let me just give you two. John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So God's arms are open wide. All are welcome, all. But the only way in is through repentance of sin and placing your faith in Jesus alone. That's the way in. Jesus is shockingly inclusive. He's painfully exclusive. And lastly, for those that come to him, Jesus is eternally satisfying. He is eternally satisfying. 
Remember what Jesus said to the woman in verse 14. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus sees this woman who has been looking for joy and satisfaction and other good but earthly pleasures and relationships. And he invites her to drink water from a different well. Now, what about you? Like, place yourself in the story. If you were at the well with Jesus, the the all-knowing Jesus engaged you in a conversation about your life, about where you seek satisfaction, what is he going to say to you? Like, for the woman, he goes, go and get your husband. Because he, he knew that was where she was seeking satisfaction in the world. Go and get your husband. But if he were here, if he were talking to you, what would Jesus say? Go and get your blank. Perhaps you are pursuing career, thinking that career will satisfy you. That if I, if I just put in enough hours now, it'll pay dividends later and you think that that will bring ultimate satisfaction. Perhaps you're always looking for another thing to purchase, this vicious cycle of consumerism. And if you think, man, if I could just get that next thing, then everything would be okay, and life would be well, and I would be satisfied, and I wouldn't ask for anything again. Perhaps you are contemplating cheating on your spouse or leaving your spouse. And as I say that, you're just praying, dear God, I hope he doesn't know about me. And you think that if, if you could just have that outlet, like if you could just leave your marriage, if you could just pursue her or pursue him, then everything would be okay and life would be better. Maybe you're seeking satisfaction in your spouse. It's like the, kind of the opposite problem. You're placing so much pressure on your spouse to meet your every need, to be something for you that your spouse was never designed to be. Maybe you overdrink or you overmedicate just to dull the pain and the monotony of life. I don't know what it is for you, but I do know this hedonistic pursuit could look any number of different ways, and I know that we are all guilty of it, every single one of us. We all live in this vicious cycle, seeking satisfaction in things until, there's only two ways out, you die, that's one way, or you realize that Jesus is the only one who can fulfill Those are the two ways out. The Puritan preacher William Bridge says it like this. So now, take a man and forgive kind of the old language here. So now, take a man that hath all the fullness of the earth, because that his soul was never made for the fullness of the earth. Therefore, he is said to be empty. In the midst of all his fullness, the man is an empty man, because his heart is not full of that for which he was made, and that is Christ. To paraphrase the poet Anne Bradstreet, only Jesus satiates our soul. Only Jesus satiates our soul. If you were here back in the spring of 2021, we walked through a series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is basically just this point on repeat. We just preach this sermon week after week after week. It's very depressing. You should go listen to it if you weren't here for it. And In that series, uh, I think it was like the opening sermon of that series, I said like the best modern example of this, like illustration of this that I could think of, and it's not really modern anymore, but it's more modern than the Bible, is the movie Groundhog's Day with uh, Bill Murray. In the movie Groundhog's Day, the, the main character of the movie, Phil, played by Bill Murray, is forced to relive February 2nd over and over and over again. Some people online have speculated that he was stuck in this cycle for up to three decades. 
So the, the movie is about how Phil copes with the monotony of every day being exactly like the day before, and it observes how he pursues happiness in fulfillment when every day is exactly the same. So at first, in an effort to cope, Phil pursues hedonistic pleasures and denies himself nothing. If it feels good, he does it. He gorges on food, he smokes cigarettes, he punches a guy who is really annoying, he seduces as many women as he can. When he finally realizes that those pleasures will not satisfy, he turns to greed. He robs an armored car filled with money and he uses that money to buy whatever he wants, thinking that if he could just buy that next thing, it would bring satisfaction. But that also does not satisfy him. When he realizes that money isn't the answer, he then turns to despair. Faced with the reality that he cannot escape this curse, he tries to take his life multiple times only to wake up the next day and face the same day yet again. Lastly, he turns to knowledge. He takes up playing the piano, ice sculpting, and French poetry, but it still doesn't satisfy. And here's the whole point of the movie. Phil, the main character, is not allowed to move on to the next day until he learns to find contentment and happiness and joy in his current moment. And then, and only then, will he be allowed to move on to February 3rd. So in the movie, spoiler alert, the last time he relives February 2nd, he looks into the eyes of a woman he has fallen in love with, and he says these words, I don't know what will happen tomorrow. All I know is that I'm happy right now. And then he falls asleep, and he wakes up, and it's February 3rd. In a similar way, that is the point here. We are stuck, brothers and sisters, we are stuck in this monotonous prison called life where nothing we do and no pursuit of happiness adds any real value to our life until we finally and fully find our contentment and our joy and our satisfaction in Jesus alone. As the old song reminds us, we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and then all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In just a moment, we will sing a few songs and we'll take communion. And as we prepare our hearts and our minds for that moment, I, I want to show you something that is fascinating, so fascinating about John's gospel. If you fast forward in the story, so we're in John chapter four, fast forward in the story to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, Jesus is at the end of his life. He's been betrayed by a best friend, arrested, beaten, and crucified. And he's hanging on the cross. He is moments away from his final breath. And then John records this in John chapter 19, verse 28. We'll put it on the screen. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. I thirst. It is interesting to me that John is the only gospel writer who includes the story of the woman at the well. And he is also the only gospel writer who includes the words, I thirst, as Jesus hangs on the cross. And here's the thing, based on how methodical and intentional John is in his writing, I do not believe that this is coincidence or happenstance. I believe John is trying to communicate something very important to us this morning. And here's what I think John is trying to say. On the cross, on the cross, Jesus becomes the thirsty, forsaken outcast, crushed by our sin and shame so that we might drink from an everlasting well of living water. Praise God that Jesus didn't simply tell us to do better and try harder. Jesus says to you and he says to me, I will trade places with you so that you never have to thirst again. That is why we come to the tables every week to remind ourselves of this beautiful truth.
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for these gentle and sometimes not so gentle reminders in your word about where we seek satisfaction, where we pursue joy. God, we are all tempted in this area every single day of our life. The temptation in our world is always going to be to find satisfaction in someone or something other than you. God, help us realize that that is a practice in futility at best. Help us believe that you are good and that you are loving and that you are kind and that you wait at the well for us. God, as we come to the tables of communion today, would you help us find our satisfaction in you? God, we love you. We are so, so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.